All right. Well, thank you, music team, for serving us so well in music each week. Well, it is a joy to be back with you guys tonight and back in the study. Um, I've enjoyed it. Thank you for everybody who taught over the past few weeks and, and over break. It gave me some time to focus on some other areas in the ministry and to do a little preliminary study for Ephesians, so that's always good. Everybody benefits, right? So, um, during this semester, I'm sure we're on the same page here, okay. During this semester, we're going to restart our series in Ephesians, and uh, I'm very excited. I've been in Ephesians already, and the Lord's used this book tremendously in my life, and I trust He's used it in yours too as we've studied through it together. And I'm, I'm eager and excited to get back into it with you guys. Does this sound okay out there? Or is it kind of ringing? All right, everything sounds good? All right, sweet. Sounds funky up here. All right. Well, if you remember, way back before break, it was like 10 years ago, we left off in Ephesians chapter 5. Okay? So you can go ahead and turn there, Ephesians 5. Our last message was on pursuing the fullness of the Spirit. So you remember that? Don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And then there's all these things flowing out of that. These uh, participles that that were kind of helping us understand how how to live in that. And I left you on a cliffhanger, which you probably don't even remember. So uh, it wasn't that great of a cliffhanger. But it was in verse 21. So go ahead and look down there. Uh, The last way we're filled with the Spirit is by submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Chapter 5, 21. So that verse, if you remember, is like a, like a hinge. It's a transition that Paul makes from talking about being Spirit-filled to what that Spirit-filling looks like in the family, in the home, in, in marriage relationships. So he's going to kind of apply this very directly um, to marriage, to parenting, to work, and the relationships in each of those categories. So that's where we're, we're going to be this semester, and particularly uh, we're going to start in marriage, okay? because that's where Paul starts, Ephesians 5. And we're, we're going to be looking at, if you remember the wider context of Ephesians, God has recreated us in Christ, through Christ. And he's destined us for good works, and to live now in a way that we weren't able to before, when we were dead in sin. And that has implications for how we live as a body, as a church, but it also has implications for how we live in the the smallest components of that body, which is our our families and our households and our individual units. So we're going to be looking at that, uh, how the new creation works itself out in, uh, we might call it the old creation structures, Um, family, parent, parent, children, work. So I'm excited uh, to get to that. And this topic of, in particular, of marriage couldn't be more significant for you guys. Especially at this point in our, our moment in time and the, the culture that we live in, um, both outside the church and within the church. So there's a, there's a counter worldview in society, and it's even permeated the evangelical church, even the, the groups that we would normally associate with. This, this counter worldview uh, is starting to embed itself. So it's very important that we know in detail what the Bible actually says about marriage, and not just marriage in general, but the roles within marriage. 
It's huge. A lot, you're going to see tonight, is riding on this. Statistically, most of you will be married. Maybe to your surprise. Okay? But that's true. Statistically, most of you will be married. Some of you won't be. But this teaching is absolutely vital to everybody, whether you're going to be married or not, in the Lord's providence, no matter what kind of relational status the Lord has planned for you. For those who hope to be married, or are currently planning your marriages, if you're engaged, if you're dating, don't plan your marriages yet. Okay? It's free advice. If that's you, if you want to be married, this is, the, the relevance of this study is obvious, Right? It's obvious. Unless you know where you're headed, the destination, which is marriage, unless you know where you're headed, you're going to make a mess getting there. It's foolish not to know what the Bible says specifically about marriage and its blessings, about the additional responsibilities that come with marriage, about what the Lord will expect from you in marriage, and the list goes on. It it would be foolish for you just to jump right into it with really no working knowledge, like not knowing where the passages are not knowing what they say, not knowing what the Lord's going to hold you accountable for on that final day. I mean, that's, that's risky at best. Well, what about for those of you that don't desire marriage? Saying, okay, I have the gift of singleness. I'm confident that I have that. Well, you're still men and women. You're still, in, you're still gendered humans, okay? So a lot of what we say is going to be relevant to being a man and being a woman living today in our culture and in the church. So there'll be a lot of overlap. Even if you never plan on getting married, there's still things that are going to hold true for you as a man or a woman. And we'll work those issues out. Now, as we go, obviously there's a lot of things that we're going to talk through. And if, if there's this sort of like, this like, yeah, but what about this? Kind of in your mind as we're working through stuff, just like write that down and keep listening. Okay? Don't let that, that question derail you from what the Bible is saying. Because we'll, we'll handle it. We may even have a Q&A where you just can hammer me with all kinds of questions that you want to hammer me with, and we'll go to the Scriptures and do our best, okay? Because there's lots of misunderstandings, especially when we get into submission and leadership and those, that kind of thing. But I want to be crystal clear with you on what the Bible says. So, just from pastor to you, if you have those questions, praise God, because that's how we learn. But don't let them derail you from, from where we're going. Does it make sense? Just write them down, and we'll get to them. And if we don't, Rich can spank me, and then we'll get back to it later. Okay? He, he holds me accountable in these kinds of things. Right, Rich? Okay, if you want, Mark, if you want, Mark will. Okay, so. All right, so. Okay, try to get the image of Rich spanking me out of your mind. <laughs> or Mark. I don't know which is worse. I'll stop. This is not going anywhere good. So tonight, what I, I want to do, um, well, let me back up. Since these issues are so important, and since they're, they're controversial, I, I, and they're controversial not just in the culture, like that's fine, like everything we do is controversial in the culture these days, and I, I, that doesn't bother me, but it is controversial in the church. And so before we just jump right into what Paul says in Ephesians 5, I'm not ashamed or bashful. We're going to hit it head on, and it's glorious and good. Um, but before we do that, I want to uh, take a step back and um, 
make us more aware of the biblical framework about marriage. I want us to have firsthand knowledge of the framework that Paul has, that he's working from as he gives these inspired directions. Does it make sense? Because he's working from a framework, a biblical framework. And most people miss these. They, they, go right to the, they go right to the directions and they don't understand the wider biblical theology of marriage. So tonight what I, I want to try to do, try to do, um, is sum up what the marriage relationship essentially is. Okay? The essence of marriage. <laughs> and if you like my PowerPoint, it's a black background and white letters and that aerial font or whatever. It comes default with that. So I'm a creative guy. What can I say? So I, I want to try to get at what's at the heart of marriage. Like what's at the heart of the relationship? What's most central to it? So think about that for a second. How would you answer that question? We don't have to yell it out out loud, but just think about it. How would you answer? Okay, what is essential? What is, what is the heart of a marriage relationship? Just think. Christ, okay. That works for every answer. But yes, I'm picking on you, brother. Yes, Christ is central. So I'll just give it to you up front because i got a lot we got to cover. All right? What I think is central, according to the Bible, what, is it, what, is the, what, is, what the marriage is at its essence, is friendship. Friendship. Now, there's a lot we're going to talk about with that. But throughout the Old Testament, and that's, that's where we're going to be today, tonight, throughout the Old Testament, the biblical authors consistently describe marriage as a friendship, a faithful friendship, or a committed companionship, if you want to use a different word. Friendship, companionship, same idea. Just by way of introduction, uh, Proverbs 2.6. These are going to be some weird references for you because it's not like there, there's some interesting context, but the, the idea here is it gets at this, this word usage. I just want you to see this for yourself. Proverbs 2, 6. You can write it down and listen to me. I'm sorry, I got the wrong reference there. 2, uh, 17. So this is Solomon talking to his um, sons and encouraging them to seek wisdom so that they will be delivered, verse 16, from the forbidden woman. That's literally like the foreign woman or the strange woman. From the adulteress with her smooth words. And notice what she does. She forsakes the companion. There's our word. She forsakes the companion, the friend of her youth, and forgets the covenant of her God. So, Proverbs 2.17 describes an adulteress as one who forsakes the companion of her youth, the friend of her youth, and forsakes the covenant, breaks the covenant, um, forgets the covenant, actually, of her God. So there's a covenantal friendship that took place when she got married. And that's how Solomon saw it, is a companionship, a friendship. Malachi 2.14. I don't have these marked in my Bible, so I'm going to have to flip there. Malachi 2.14. The same idea. Again, kind of an interesting context, not one that we would go to on like right off the bat for this, but he says, But you say, 
214, um, let's back up to 13. And this second thing you do, so the Lord's indicting Israel here. Second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. So there's problems with your worship. But you say, well, why does he, do, why does he not? Because the Lord has a witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion. There's the word. She is your companion and your wife by covenant. See those two ideas again? A covenantal friendship. She, you've been unfaithful to her. So again, two, two contexts of this adultery. And, and they're, uh, they're, in this case, he's appealing to them like, hey, you, you, you are a companion. You were a friend to your, this woman and you were covenantally committed to her. So, um, a man and a woman, we've got, we got one more text on this, but a man, a man and a woman come together, they make promises to each other, and before God, and they embark on a journey together. As close companions, or as intimate friends. And that's really the essence of a marriage relationship. Intimate friendship. Now, it's, it's important to sort of contrast it, maybe some ways we think about it, okay? It's not merely a sexual relationship. You think, oh, yeah, friends over here, but we get married, like, can have sex, right? Although, as we're going to see, sex and romance play a huge part in this friendship, which sets it apart from all your other friendships. But we tend to idolize sex, thinking that romance or sexual pleasure or infatuation are at the heart of a marriage relationship, and it is not. Okay? Does that make sense? It is not at the heart of the relationship. So, we're tempted to see the essence of marriage as sexual only, or as the main thing. But this companionship, as we're going to see, is much more profound and joy-filled than merely a sort of an idolized sexual relationship. Okay? So it's not merely that, and it's not merely a contractual kind of business-like partnership. Now, a lot of you probably don't think that way, um, but this was common in ancient societies to think this way. But get married for good reasons, you know, advance me or whatever. I mean, there's, there's still subtle ways that we do this, for sure. But just think, think that, I mean, this is going to sound, you would probably laugh, but the guy who's sick of eating his own cooking, you know, and uh, he, he just wants the girl maybe to cook and clean for him, or maybe he needs a little additional income, or he wants to have sex without guilt. Where the girl needs the guy to provide for her, to protect her, listen to her, meet her felt needs, uh, start a family so she can be a mother, provide stability. Those aren't necessarily bad things. But that's not m- merely all it is. You know, just sort of sign the bo- dotted line and it's official now you're business partners for life, right? That's not companionship. Companionship, again, is far deeper than that. So what is it? Well, where we're going tonight is I'm just going to give you a few descriptors that I think the Old Testament provides for us. It's sort of foundational. And these are going to help us get our minds around the concept of marital friendship or companionship. So, where we're headed is three depictions of a, of a marital friendship. And the first depiction is in um, Song of Solomon. And I would describe it as a passionately romantic friendship. It is a passionately romantic friendship. 
All right, if you would, turn in your Bibles to Song of Solomon. It's after Ecclesiastes. Chapter 5. Song of Solomon, chapter 5. We're going to be in Song of Solomon for a minute, so go ahead and turn there, if you would. This first descriptor of of a marital friendship is it's a, it's a passionately romantic one. There is romance and there is passion, and there ought to be in this friendship. Uh, I think what's kind of interesting, a little bit embarrassing, um, is that there's an entire book of the Bible that's devoted to describing the joys of sexual intimacy in marriage. And that's the Song of Solomon. And our English translations... They make it acceptable for us. I mean, the Hebrew is even a little more evocative. Okay? Now, the, now, the way that the Bible does it is it, it presents it in a lot of metaphor. Okay? But it's there um, in its fullness. So, Song of Solomon, chapter 5, is, is, is one of those chapters that's actually more tame, which is good for our purposes. Um, and the author of this poem, the, the Song of All Songs, think about that, the Song of All Songs, this is like the Song of Songs, the superlative song. This author is not shy about the God-glorifying side of physical attraction in marriage. Not shy about it. He's discreet, but not shy. At the end of this chapter, chapter 5, the wife goes on an inspired gush Literally, that's kind of what it is. It's an inspired gush about how physically attracted to her husband she is. Think about this. She praises his complexion, verse 10. My beloved is radiant and ruddy, distinguished among 10,000. She praises his head and hair. His head is the finest gold. His locks are wavy, black as raven. She praises his eyes, verse 11, his cheeks, or his, his eyes, verse 12, his cheeks and lips, verse 13, his arms and body, verse 14, his legs and his general disposition in verse 15, and his mouth in verse 16. And she brings her gush to a close by saying, he is altogether desirable, verse 16. Pretty good summary statement. I've texted that to Mary. Hey, can you say this to me later? Okay, that's my only joke. That wasn't even scripted, okay? She's not here, so. I sent her my notes earlier. That's not my notes. Okay, we're safe. So, I mean, you read a list like this, and you can see why Jews didn't let their boys read this till they were 12 or older. You know, and this is, this is the more tame portion, like I said, of the song. But if we stop there, you might think, well, well they're just infatuated with each other. Like, that's what you told us not to do, Clay. Like, they're just, they're, inf- they're infatuated with the physicality of one another. It's like a typical freshman's dating relationship. Sorry, freshman. Well, as tempted as we might be to think that if we just, you know, as tempted as we might be to think that, if we just read these verses, a careful reading of this poem and the book as a whole argues the opposite of this. This couple seems to know each other very deeply even if they're young. Look at the rest of verse 16. She says, the bottom half of this verse, this is my beloved. This one I just described. All of his physical features. 
This is my beloved, and this is my friend. He's my friend. Old daughters of Jerusalem. So at the end of this gush about his physical beauty, she declares him her friend, her companion. What does this tell us? Well, it tells us that genuine, godly sexual desire between a husband and wife is fueled by the depth of their friendship. Did you catch that? Godly, God-glorifying sexual desire and attraction is fueled by the depth of their friendship. In other words, they know one another deeply and they admire one another profoundly, not for superficial reasons. And by the way, the, the physicality is not necessarily superficial according to inspired scripture. It's just going to fade. <laughs> but there's nothing wrong with it. God created us good. And the result of this, this friendship that they have is that they, they deeply desire one another. And again, in verse 16, he is altogether desirable, she says. So if you think I might be reading into this a little bit, turn back to chapter 1 of Song of Solomon. Again, I said a, a careful reading of this song, you're going to see this throughout. At, at pivotal points, I should say, because it's highly physical. <laughs> but the opening verses of this song reveal that this bride knows her husband, and she admires who he is. Look in uh, verse 2. She says, Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. And I think the Hebrew text says, Your love is better than wine, and your love is better than anointing oils, the, the fragrant anointing oils is kind of the idea. Now listen to what she says next. So that's, that's highly physical. She says, Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. Your name is oil poured out. So what does that mean? Well, his name is another way of referring to his character. Or who he is, most fundamentally. Think about the name of God, right? What's the name of God? Well, it reveals who he is. His personal character is... is like the most expensive and fragrant oil as it is poured out, says this woman. And it's one of the first things she says about it. What's she saying? She's saying this guy is solid spiritually. He's humble. He's admirable. He's respectable. He's a good leader. He's generous. He's kind. He's forgiving. He's stable. He protects and he provides. He's trustworthy and gentle, yet firm in his convictions. In a word, he resembles his God. There's going to be multiple times in the Song of Solomon that the husband is evocative of God himself. He's pictured as like coming to the bride like God came to Israel in the wilderness. I mean, it's, it's pretty wild. Some of, the, some of the intertextuality and illusions are pretty interesting in this song. Um, we won't get into that because that's not the point. But the point is, is his name, who he is, is like a sweet-smelling fragrance to his bride, and this turns her on. So marital friendship isn't physical infatuation alone. Yes, each partner desires the other, but it's fueled by the depth of their friendship and what they see in the other. 
So my point in this, this is just a simple one, that friendship in marriage is a romantic one. And the romance flows from the admiration and respect that flows itself from the friendship, from the depth of knowing each other. So it's romantic, but that's not all that this friendship is. It has other qualities. And for these, we want to go back to the opening chapters of Genesis. In fact, later biblical authors like Solomon here, who's writing Song of Solomon, he and others got their material, got their information about companionship from the most fundamental chapters about marriage in Genesis 2. So go ahead and turn back there. So in addition to being a romantic friendship, this friendship is also a beautifully diverse friendship. A beautifully diverse friendship. Or if you want a different word, a complementary friendship. Complementary friendship. Beautifully diverse. It doesn't take you long to realize that when people get married, <laughs> two different, very different people come together uh, for this friendship. It is a man and a woman. And in spite of what our culture tells us, men and women are very different from each other. And I'll say it again in case there's anyone listening. They are different from one another. And it's how God designed us to be. You can try to scratch at that all you want, but you're not going to erase the gendered image that is stamped upon you. We can talk through that, but you're not going to erase it. If we sometimes grate or or irritate one another with our male-female differences, think about all the jokes, we sometimes do that, it's because we're selfish and we've been twisted in sin. God's original creation, though, He created us to be diverse and complementary in marriage. That's part of His created order. And you can think of it as like two corresponding puzzle pieces. We're going to see that's like literally, not puzzle pieces, but it's the corresponding to one another is literally how the Hebrew text frames this up. But how do we know this? Okay, so how do we know that, that human beings are designed to be, to be diverse? And how do we know what each one is supposed to do within the marriage relationship? Well, the way Moses tells the story in Genesis 2 gives us a lot of information that may not be readily apparent on the surface. Okay? So hang with me. We're going to make a lot of observations and then kind of synthesize either at the end or as we go. All right, so Genesis 2, you know Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 tell parallel accounts of creation. Again, we're not going to get into all that, but Genesis 1 is sort of high level, and it it focuses on the mission, which we're going to talk about next week. And then Genesis 2 gives you more specificity and details that we didn't get in Genesis 1. And in particular, it's about Genesis 2 wants to show you how this relationship is supposed to function. And he tells it to us in a, in a story form, in a narrative way that would have been very obvious 
to the ancient Near Eastern readers, to the Israelite readers Moses wrote to. So we're going to draw some of that out. And I'm just going to make some observations and then, uh, again, bring them all together. So notice Genesis 2, initially there is an order to the way God creates. All right, so we're going to do some observations for the role of Adam. Specifically, God creates Adam first. So, sorry if this sounds a little cavemanish on my outline. I was just trying to get him up here. Adam created first. All right, just so we could track and you could, you could know. We weren't told this back in chapter 1. Again, one of the ways that it's different. All we were told in chapter 1 is that God made the man and woman together in his image on the sixth day. And we were told what they're supposed to do. But here in chapter 2, he tells us who he formed first. So, read with me chapter 2, verse 5. This is where the narrative starts. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Okay? It's like one conditional sentence. When, the bush, when there was no bush in the field, then, verse 7, then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Okay? So, created first. It's not until many verses later that he creates the woman. So, you might be thinking, well, okay. What's that supposed to tell me? He created first. Um, well, the fact that God created Adam first signals that there is a created order. That he is to take the lead in this marriage relationship. And if that seems to be reading into this narrative for you, like a little too far into it, just from that one observation, the Apostle Paul has the exact same interpretation in 1 Timothy 2.13. So, I'm just going to, well, i got it right here. In 1 Timothy 2.13, he says that women are not to teach or exercise authority over men in the church. Why? Because, he says, Adam was formed first, then Eve. It's a big deal to Paul. Paul's a lot closer to that culture than we are. So, according to Paul, an inspired New Testament author, the, the order of creation is important. We're going to see why that is in just a minute. Observation number one, Adam was created first. All right, number two, or additionally, Adam, God gives Adam the instruction first, or the first instruction, I should say. God comes to Adam and he gives him the commands before Eve is ever created. So look again in chapter 2, and we'll pick it up in verse 15. The Lord God took the man, and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. So there's the instruction, really the only instruction that we have in Scripture that God gave to man, and he gave it to Adam. So, again, this is significant because the woman hasn't been created yet. And this clearly implies that Adam is responsible as the lead to faithfully transmit God's word to her. In chapter 2, 
Eve is aware of the command, so much so that she's able to articulate it back to the snake. Some minor differences, which ended up being pretty major. But nonetheless, he it, it's clear that he was the one communicating that truth to her. I, mean, I shouldn't say clear. It implies that Adam has, in fact, already shepherded her by communicating these commands to her. All right? So Adam is given the first instruction. Next, God brings the animals to Adam so that he might name them. Again, chapter 2, look in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So you think, okay, well, time to create. Not so fast. Verse 19. Now, out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. It's pretty incredible. God had Adam name these animals that God created. Before this, only God had done the naming back in Genesis 1. But now, Adam is taking up that mandate and is beginning to name the creatures of the creation. And whatever man called every living creature, notice the freedom here, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So, a lot about that we could talk about, um, what's going on there, and we'll, we'll kind of get back to it again. But the point I want to draw out right here is that in the previous chapter, God exercised authority by creating and then naming things. So he named everything he created. Genesis 1, like a bunch of times. And in the ancient Near East, naming was a very clear sign of authority and leadership. Now, God's real point in having Adam name the animals was to heighten, not real point, but his, I guess his most fundamental point, you could tell even by reading it, was to heighten Adam's anticipation for what he was about to do in the creation of Eve. Just beautiful, and it's very interesting. But more on this in just a second. So Adam names the animals, but the animals aren't the only thing that Adam names. And this is a little awkward for our ears, but he also names his wife. Look in chapter 2, verse 23. So after the Lord fashions the woman, he brings her to the man. Verse 23, the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And again, if you just kind of put your finger there and flip maybe to uh, the end of this chapter after the fall, he calls her his wife's name Eve in chapter 20, in verse 20 of chapter 3. So he calls her woman here, names her woman here, identifies her as woman, and then names her Eve at the end after the fall. So again, two examples here of him naming his wife. Now this isn't some cold authority. I, don't want to, I want you to hear it in context, okay? Adam names her as he is singing to her and about her with wonder and amazement. He is in awe that she is, big word, ontologically equal to him. In other words, she's not like the animals. She's like me. And he says it poetically. 
bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And you even hear this, this at last. It's bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She is ontologically equal to the man, and it amazes him. He's not seen anything like her on all the world. He's relieved to find a companion, a fellow image-bearer of God. Yet, he doesn't call her man. He recognizes she's different than him. So, he names her, and she doesn't object to being named. She doesn't feel objectified. She doesn't feel inferior. She seems to know intuitively that Adam's authority over her is a right and good and noble thing. It is in her best interest that Adam lead. And as we're going to see in a moment, when he fails to lead, the world is plunged into ruin. So, let's, let's stop there with Adam and his role just for now, and let's look at the details about Eve for a second. Okay, so Adam... Synthesize it a bit. Leadership. God created leadership. Benevolent, yes. Self-sacrificial, yes. We can modify it with all kinds of things. But leadership is the issue. Observations for the role of Eve. Let's take a look. So we know back from chapter 1 that this isn't just man who is made in the image of God. Okay? Woman is too. So, I just want to throw that in there on the front end. This is back in chapter 1, verse 27. We're going to look extensively at this next week. But woman is made in the image of God. Look in verse 27. So, God created man in his own image. So, mankind, that's a generic word. He created people, humanity, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So the way the Hebrew text reads, it's as though the the gendered diversity most fully reveals the image of God. In other words, God is best reflected in the diversity of male and female genders. So, we can say, we already know that a woman is not inferior to man, like ontologically, in who she is. They both equally share in imaging God. So more on this later. But another way of saying it is this. They're they're equal in essence and purpose. Equal in essence and purpose. Or like I've said, they're equal ontologically. Now that said, chapter 2 reveals how husband and wife are to function together. Okay, so chapter 1 is there's a mandate given. And now chapter 2 is like how they're going to carry that out together. And God specifically describes the woman as a helper fit for him. Look in um, chapter 2, verse 18. The Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper, I'll make him a helper, I will make him a helper fit for him. In Hebrew, this reads kind of literally woodenly as a helper like his opposite. 
a helper like his opposite, or a helper that corresponds to him. In other words, she is very different than him, but she's just what he needs. She is a precious and sacred gift to be cherished and respected and esteemed for what she brings to the table to help him. Adam has strengths, for sure, but he also has created limitations. Remember, this is pre-fall. Created limitations. It was not good for him to be alone because he was unable to fulfill the mission God had given them. His wife is created opposite to him. We might say strong in his limitations to assist him, to help, to work with him as as a friend and as a companion so that they fulfill the mission of God in creation. But notice something very important. They don't co-lead or co-follow. Adam is never described as a helper to the woman. The woman is described as a helper to Adam. They don't co-lead and co-follow. One of them doesn't lead 50% of the time, and then the other lead the other 50% of the time. There's one appointed leader and one appointed helper or assistant in this relationship. And that doesn't violate the ontological equality of the couple. That's hard for you to grasp. Jesus submits to the Father and is ontologically equal to the Father. Okay? I submit to my boss and I'm ontologically equal to my boss. So this isn't a foreign concept to the way the world works and especially our Savior in the Godhead. So, that's the first thing. Eve's in the image of God, but she's also described as a helper fit for Adam. A helper fit for Adam. Additionally, the text says that Eve was created differently than Adam was. She's created differently. So Adam was taken from the dirt, but she was not. She was taken from his side, while Adam was taken from the ground. Look again in in. Uh, verse 22. Well, verse 21. The Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. The main implication that Moses draws from this is the profound unity that results from being created out of Adam. We're going to talk about that. But in the New Testament, Paul picks up on how Eve was made from Adam. He does this, again, in some of his letters. And he says that Eve was created from and for Adam. Whoa. Just straight up says it. He's created from Adam and for him, and not the other way around. He specifically says that, too. It wasn't Adam that was created for Eve. And this helped Paul determine the functional order within a marriage in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 8 and 9. 1 Corinthians 11, 8 and 9. 
So according to Genesis 2, the husband is made to take the lead in the marriage, and the wife is his beautifully unique helper, and he needs her. These are incredibly important observations to make because, like I said earlier, in some evangelical circles, even evangelical teachers in your university will tell you that the roles within marriage are a result of the fall. Like That's what they say. That before the fall, men and women were created equal in essence, which I've said, I've affirmed that. They're created equal in essence and in function. So that's pre-fall. But that the fall then corrupted the function and introduced specific roles of leadership and submission. It's the result of the fall. But the reality is, though, that The fall didn't introduce the roles. In fact, it twisted them and it perverted them and it opened us up to all their abuses that are definitely there in sinful fallen humanity. And speaking of the fall, what happens when this couple rebel actually helps us see how Adam and Eve failed to fulfill their roles in the marriage. So there's a lot we can actually learn about their roles and still in the second point um, by looking at the fall. So we could say it more, more pointedly like this. And this flies in the face of that. What I just described to you is called egalitarianism. It means egalitarian, means equal. In this case, in function. So I could say it more pointedly like this. Not only is it not a result, the role is not a result of the fall, it is precisely because the man and woman abdicated their roles in unbelief that the fall happened. It's because they abdicated their roles that we plunged into sin. And we're going to see that with crystal clarity as we work through Genesis 3. I want you to see how the, ro- the observations, for the role, uh, uh, for observations for roles from the fall itself. If you're worried about time, this is clearly like 90% of my lesson. Point number two, it's like 90%. Okay, so just breathe easy. So Genesis 2, Moses has laid out for us a very clear order in the world. Don't miss this, okay? First, God stands above everything and God's the one creating, and he's giving clear revelation. Got it? God's at the top. Next, there is Adam, who receives God's revelation and is tasked with leadership. Under him, again, functionally, under him there is Eve, who's created to help him, and under them together is creation, that they are supposed to reign over, take dominion, remember from chapter 1. But in Genesis 3, the entire created order is flipped on its head. We're introduced to a creature, a snake, who influences or reigns over the woman, who then influences or leads her husband. And finally, God shows up, last of all, to interrogate the couple uh, as to what went wrong. So, created order, God, man, woman, creature. The fall, creature, woman, man, God. That's how Moses structures this story to show us everything's on its head. 
The shape of the narrative tells us something. Everything is upside down, the created order is reversed, and death and judgment ensue. So note, first of all, that Eve failed to follow her husband's leadership. A talking snake caught our attention as we read this narrative for the first time. Right? Like, it almost sounds like mythology. What? Like a snake is talking to Eve? It's bizarre. It's not mythology. And not only is it weird that a snake, a creature, is talking, but he's actively contradicting the word of the living God. Think about that. Just days earlier, none of these creatures even existed. The word of God brought them into their very being. And now a snake, not even an image bearer, a snake, is defying the words of the living God. Think about what this means for Eve. Alarm should have been ringing. If she was confused about what God actually said, or if she was unclear as to what the snake was trying to do, she should have run to her husband to alert him, based on everything we've seen in Genesis 2, about his authority and his role. She should have gone to him to seek clarity if she was unclear. But instead, she began to dialogue directly with a creature she was supposed to rule over. And not just dialogue, she began to be influenced by a creature that she was supposed to have dominion over with her husband by her side. So, I think the first thing we see in the, in the fall, or in Genesis 3, is that Eve is starting to fail in following her lead in Adam. But Eve is not the only one who abdicated her newly minted role. I remember thinking about this story a long time ago as a new Christian. Like, I knew the story, but I hadn't read it carefully. You ever had that experience? Like, you kind of know about it, but you're not familiar with the details. And I thought, Adam surely wasn't anywhere near this conversation. Like, couldn't have been. If, if he would have been there, he would have killed that snake. His wife probably told him something to convince him to eat the fruit in the first place, but no, that is not how the story unfolds. As the snake enticed Eve, Adam's precious bride, the bride he just sang about, the bride he just named and was committed to lead, as the snake tempted her, he was right there. Right there. Right beside her in the garden. I always get emotional about this, okay? So just, I'm going to probably cry a lot when I've worked through this part, all right? I cried when I wrote it. And I'm like, okay, I know I'm going to cry when I preach it, okay? Moses holds that detail off in the story until right there. Like, she's talking with the snake, and you're like, where's he at? Can't be there, not going to be there. She's got the fruit, you're like, no, you know. And then she pulls it down, eats it, and then he takes it. He was there. 
It says, she gave it to her husband who was with her. Watching as his wife fell for the lie. But, okay, you might think, all right, well, Adam was deceived too, right? He was deceived, and surely he didn't know that she was falling for a lie and then just let her go. Surely they both fell for it, right? Well, I used to think that too. I even preached that once, and then somebody corrected me. I used to think that until the Apostle Paul corrected me. So the guy took me to that passage, and I was like, oh, that was... I was wrong in something I said. 1 Timothy 2.14, Paul says explicitly that Adam was not deceived at this event. He was not deceived. But Eve was deceived. Now my jaw hit the floor when I read that. Think about this. Adam saw it clearly. He saw it clearly. He saw what was happening. He realized his bride was falling for a lie of an enemy of the God that had just created them. He knew that she was about to transgress the command that would lead to their death. He knew, and he he wasn't deceived. He failed to act. He failed. Men, do you see this? He failed to lead. He failed to stand up to deception when he saw it happening. Why? It's a great mystery. I don't know. The text doesn't tell us. Jonathan Edwards said that the greatest mystery in all of Scripture to him was how the first couple sinned. And I think I agree with him. And there's lots of things I don't understand in Scripture, but this is the hardest one for me. But Adam failed. He failed to exercise the God-given authority given to him, and he passively allowed his wife to act on her deception, and the biblical authors want us to see it. Guys, no, men in this room, men, future husbands, future leaders, let me speak to you directly here for a moment. You need to burn this event into your retinas. Because if it was that easy for a non-fallen Adam to yield passively to his wife and completely abdicate his leadership responsibility to the detriment of the entire universe, it most certainly will be tempting for you. You're fallen. You're plagued. I'm plagued with the fear of man, or woman in this case. You're sheepish about your leadership, and not only that, But the world is screaming at you not to lead. Don't lead. You're a misogynist if you lead. That's not true. You're not the enemy of women. They are. That is straight from the pit of hell. We got here in this mess because we refused to lead Now the Lord has redeemed you and He's given you His Spirit. Resolve now, today, that you will not be passive. You may not know how to lead. You won't know how to lead. Okay, let's just put that out there. You're not going to know how to do it. It's okay. You're certainly going to fail at it over and over again. I do. I fail every day in my leadership. So grieved. Especially when I'm hitting a text like this. But let this passage be convictional for you men. Do you understand? Let this drive you to lead. 
Let it drive you to figure it out in spite of all your weaknesses in the face of this culture that's telling you not to. You might fail 10,000 times and you will. But take the mantle, men. It's what you were created to do. We're going to see this in weeks to come that your leadership looks like literally dying for the good of your bride. Laying down your life in love for those around you and taking responsibility for the well-being of their souls. That's what, that's what God made you for. That's you, men. That's what it means to be a man. So don't abdicate it anymore. All right? You're young. You've got a lot of life ahead of you. All right, where was I? Uh, showing how the fall displays the roles. All right. So both Eve and Adam function outside their roles, but God doesn't let them continue doing that. Notice who God addresses first. Okay, Adam failed to lead. God addresses Adam first for sin. He addresses the man first. Why does he do that? Because the man is fundamentally responsible for his family. That's why. In chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He didn't call to the woman. He didn't call to the snake. He didn't call to the family unit. He called to the man. To the man. Because the man is fundamentally responsible. He's the leader of his family. And finally, notice again what God says to Adam when he's doing... uh, uh, when he's in, in judgment, God's doling out judgments for their disobedience. In verse 17. And to Adam, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Because you've done that, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring for you. You shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Verse 17. Why did the curse happen? Why did the curse of the ground happen? Well, he gives two reasons. We kind of skipped the first one, but it's first. Because you listen to the voice of your wife. Now, he's not talking about 1 Peter 3 commands husbands to listen to their wives. Meaning, you need to understand your wife. So you can serve her and help her and love on her. It's not what he's saying here. He's saying because you obeyed the voice of your wife. That's what that means. What's the first reason God gives for cursing the ground? It's not that he ate the apple. But it's because he obeyed his wife. That's incredible. It's as though God is saying, because you didn't step in and lead the way I created you to do it. Listen to her instead. Like, the fall just reinforces this view of of Adam's leadership and his abdication of it. Now, why did I drag you guys through all those textual observations, all right? Because I want you ladies and men to see both the beauty of God's created design in marriage the beauty of it, I mean, man, it's beautiful. And it flourishes. Even 
in a cursed world, as we're going to look at in next week. It's sweet. But I also want you to beware of forsaking the roles. Okay? I want you to be afraid of that. Not only is the world screaming at you the opposite of, of what these chapters of Genesis says, but so is the so-called evangelical world, too. Um, there are many, even at Liberty University, that teach this egalitarianism. And this position, again, just to put simply, teaches that not only are men and women equal ontologically, they're equal in function. They argue that the role distinctions are a result from the fall, and because we're new creatures in Christ, because they're no longer male and female in Christ, according to Galatians, Paul says that, because of that, there are no longer any gender roles within marriage. Women aren't restrained anymore by male patriarchy. They are free to lead in the home and in the church. And this, this teaching is at best dangerous, and at worst, it's highly destructive. It confuses the God-ordained roles, which we're going to clarify and talk about in weeks to come, and it flatlines what God has des- designed as beautifully diverse. Now, you may be saying, well, I'm, I'm not egalitarian, Clay. Like, stop yelling at me, okay? Um, I'm on your page. I'm on your team. Um, well, I do a lot of premarital counseling. That's one of the privileges that I have here. And um, I'm married myself, so I've had to fight these battles in my own heart. I'm still fighting them. And I would just tell you from firsthand experience, it's pretty rare that couples in our camp uh, that we're counseling, they don't have some form of egalitarianism in their thinking. It's very rare. One or two couples, maybe, that I've counseled in my time here that hasn't had some form of this that they've had to repent of. The men are shocked when I describe the Bible's vision of servant leadership and their, their responsibility that they have for their family. Like, they're shocked. What it means to actually shepherd their wives, like what Christ is going to expect them to do. It's kind of like, whoa. And the women are shocked when I tell them that because they're voluntarily choosing to be a wife, like they're choosing, they're choosing to be a wife. So New Covenant, we're going to talk about that and how that impacts marriage. Because it does. But in this age, when you get married, women choose to be a wife. So what that means is God's calling them to bring themselves in everything fully under the vision of their husband. Like fully under it. Careers, educations, aspirations, like all of it comes underneath the direction of their husband. They are choosing to exist to best assist his needs and to best fulfill what God has called him to. If that sounds radical to you, it's because you functionally think like an egalitarian. It was, I had to work this out in my own marriage. Like There was a crisis moment that the Lord brought Mary and I to. I can tell you about that personally if you want, but it was a, I was realizing, like, I'm not leading her. Like I'm just not. Like I'm refusing to in this area. And she's floundering as a result of it. She didn't know it, and I didn't know it, and we were both deceived, and it was kind of like... And then the Lord just opened my eyes to this, this way that I wasn't leading, and it, it totally revolutionized the way that we, the way that we did marriage, so, um, according to Scripture. So, very helpful, but this is just a, a radical vision of marriage, but it's so life-giving, and it's so full of joy and, and fruit to the glory of God. All right, more on this to come in, in, in weeks to come. But 
My point is this, just to underscore um, that this is a profoundly diverse and beautiful, beautifully diverse, I think is how I put it, yeah, beautifully diverse friendship um, in chapter 2. But that's not all. Last one, and I'm, again, I promise, it'll be like five minutes or less in this point. It is a profoundly unified friendship. A profoundly unified friendship. So we're in Genesis, just, I'm going to stay in Genesis 2. The roles in marriage are beautifully diverse, yes, but it's profoundly unified. Profoundly unified. Like we've already observed, when God creates the woman, he creates her literally out of the man, out of his side, verse 21. The man recognizes how profound this is, he sees it, and because he recognizes how profound it is, he sings about it. The narrative literally changes genres for the entrance of the woman into the world. Like the, the genre changes. It goes from narrative to poetry. And notice the implication that Moses draws from, draws, uh, from this in verse 24. He says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So you hear that? Hold fast, cleave, be glued to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. What does this mean? Well, it means that in marriage, two individuals become profoundly unified before the Lord, even though they're two individual people. They don't lose anything of their personhood, but they join in a profound unity together before God. And the way this text describes it is, it, is it's becoming literally one flesh. The unity is so deep, so profound, it's as if the woman is joining herself back up to the man's flesh again. Like she's rejoining the flesh she came out of in the first place. That's the idea. So, profoundly unified. Okay? Paul's going to tell us in Ephesians 5 that like, the man loves his wife, he loves himself. And he's drawn off this idea in, in Genesis 3. And this means that in practice, husbands and wives are called to be uh, profoundly unified as intimate companions, as close friends. The unity is, is pictured, it's symbolized in consummation, in sex. Okay? It's symbolized in that. But this unity goes far beyond mere sexual oneness. God intends this one flesh language to represent unity in thoughts, unity in goals, unity in plans, unity in efforts, and unity in bodies, right? Sex, sexual intimacy. So, so key in here, from the very beginning of time, God intended the marriage relationship to be unified around him. Unified around him, his goals, his purposes, his mission. And I love this because I think I see so many people just, they think that the companionship is an end in itself. And it's not. It'll, it'll cave on you. It's got to be about something bigger than yourselves. And marriage, according to God, isn't focused in on itself. Companionship is not an end in itself. Marriage is focused on fulfilling the plan of God, being unified, working at something around God and His Word and seeking to advance His mission in the world. And this is so cool. 
in the New Covenant, which we're going to pan that out. Next week, Lord willing, we're going to talk more about what is the mission of marriage. What is it? And I want to, what I want to do for you is I want to start here in Genesis and build out and talk through kind of the mission of marriage in the Old Covenant and then the mission of marriage in the New. Or put it differently, in the Old Creation and then in this period of, of interlap between Old and New Creation. But that's next week. And it has a mission and it's glorious. But, at the same time, you don't have to be married in the New Covenant to fulfill this mission. So, it's a pretty bad teaser, but... Come back next week, and you'll hear that. It's so exciting. There's more we could say. I'm sure you got a lot of questions. I'm like way over time. Um, but guess what? we got lots of time in this series. So uh, if you got questions, come talk. Let's ask. And I'll see if I can cover that later you know, in, in other series. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your clear word from the word. Um, thank you that Christ is fully the image of God and thank you that we are in him that all of our sins and failures that he's he's from the beginning even before the fall you had planned for Christ to come you had planned marriage as a pointer to the relationship between Christ and the church and that Christ would fulfill all of the things that we failed in and would redeem us and redeem our marriages. Thank you for the hope that we have in Him. Thank you for the power of the Spirit to redeem our marriages, to use them for your glory, to produce much fruit in spite of us. So I'm so eager to get to that. And Father, I I pray that even tonight that you would stir us to receive the roles. And if this is difficult, I pray you would help us to come under Scripture. I know it's difficult for me when I see the tasks of, of husbands um, for all these aspiring husbands and wives one day, potentially, Lord, I pray that you would give them clarity uh, in your scriptures. And for those that want to be single, Lord, I pray you, you give them clarity also in what a biblical marriage is so they can help disciple their friends and family um, in these areas. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.